The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. If you were to ask me what my favourite drink in the world is, I would struggle to say something other than eggnog. I love eggnog. And by air, thank you, I've got an, I've got an amen, Audi's there, praise the Lord, thank you, Audi. Uh, I love eggnog, and by eggnog, I mean the eggnog that you go to Coles and you, buy, you pull out from the shelf. That is tradi- Australian traditional eggnog. Now, you might be saying, oh, listen, I come from another country, and you should try real eggnog, and I'll tell you right now, real eggnog is the stuff you get from Coles in the, in the cartons. That's what real, that's, what, that's traditional for me, that's what a traditional Australian eggnog is. And I love it, not just because I love the taste of it, but because it's one of those tastes that, because it only really gets sold at Christmas time, it's one of those tastes that is associated with Christmas. So I had my first actual piece of mango yesterday for the season, and I was like, it's Christmas time, like it's, it's, it's happening. Same with fruit mince, pie, fruit mince tarts, same with um, chocolate-covered almonds and cold ham, and, and eggnog is right there in that for me. It's one of those things that conjures up the memories of Christmas. But not only that, it's not only that for me for Christmas, it goes deeper for me. You see, back in the olden days, when the days were a little bit brighter, you could buy eggnog all year round. Does anybody remember that? Is that that only me? Now, I've got a picture of what eggnog used to look like. That's what eggnog used to look like. And I'll have you know, that is the only picture on the internet of those old eggnog cartons. Like, I searched for a whole three minutes, and that was all I could find. Um, but as you can see, it's this old kind of carton, yellow and brown and white, and on the bottom, it has the, lo- the slogan, the meal you can drink. And that was just for, when I was like 10 or 11, that was just like the most fantastic thing, because here's, here's the reason why it's so special to me is that every now and then, my dad would take me out, and uh, we'd do some jobs, and then he'd take, we'd go to a corner store, and we'd get a meat pie and an eggnog. And it was the best. It was the best sitting in my dad's work van. And you can see why I've got, you know, the timing that I have now because I've continued that tradition. Um, not really, but we'll meat pies. Yeah, sure. Um, who doesn't love a meat pie? But, like, it's, the, it's that feeling of being... As in, it, I look forward to that time when, Coles, when the good people at Coles start stacking their shelves with, with eggnog again because... I look forward to that moment whenever it is uh, when Kirsty brings home the shopping and, and the, the eggnog is there in the fridge and I have my first sip of cold, refreshing, delicious, milky eggnog and I'm transported back to my dad's old uh, Holden work van in the back streets of Banyo eating meat pies and the meal that you can drink. I love eggnog. And in the same way that my taste buds long for that cold, meat, milky drink, in a far deeper and more, conflict, more complex and more profound ways, our souls long to be in a relationship with God. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you probably don't agree with me about that, but I would stake money on, on our, that our pursuit, the thing that drives us is this, is this feeling that we need to be in a relationship with God. Our souls know that it's only in a relationship with the eternal God of the universe that we will truly be satisfied. It's like our souls remember the, what was lost in the garden. And our souls long to be, go back to that place where we had that relationship with God. We could see God face to face. Now, what on earth does eggnog and the eternal longing of our, the eternal desires of our hearts have to do with the story of Exodus? The answer is everything. 
You see, you and I, we were created to be in a relationship with God, and a mistake that we can often make is to think that God didn't care about having a relationship with his people until Jesus came along. That's just not true at all. God, from the very beginning of creation, designed to be in a relationship with his people. It was there right at the very start of creation. This was his desire. And even in books like Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, which, as a lot of us will know, as we read through those books, they, you, there's some speed bumps in those books, right? Like you, if you've ever done like a year-long reading plan, Genesis starts out really well, then you get to Exodus, like that's interesting. Then you get to Leviticus and you're like, what is going on here? Why am, like, why am I hearing about curtain rods and pomegranates and what is this stuff? It feels like, what, what is actually this about? The, the big picture, if we zoom out, it's clear that the overall thrust is that God desires to be with his people. God desires to have that relationship with his people. You see, the Old Testament is kind of like an unfinished story that points to and requires Jesus to fulfill it. In the same way that, and in the same way that Jesus makes sense of the Old Testament, the Old Testament also helps us make sense of the New Testament and so much of what Jesus says and does. And so these books, the, the Pentateuch or the Torah, that you might know them as as well, these first five books of the Bible are incredibly important because they show just, how, just what it takes for sinners to be brought back into a relationship with God. It's not an easy thing. It's not a just one-step process. It's not straightforward. It's complex. It's detailed. It's unique. And it points to Jesus. Uh, these books, they point to Jesus as the one who completely fulfills all of those requirements. If what we know about Jesus is that God rescues sinners to be a blessing to them, it's because Jesus came as the fulfillment of what began here in these Old Testament books. Can I say that again? If, if what we know about Jesus is that God rescues sinners to be a blessing to them, it's because Jesus came as the fulfillment of what began here in these Old Testament books. And so those are my two points for today. It's one sentence, but two points. God rescues his people to be a blessing to them. Simple as that. God rescues his people to be a blessing to them. And what I want you to take away from today is that God wants to be in a relationship with you. And that is awesome. Like, imagine if you had a hero that you just desperately wanted to meet. Like, imagine if your hero came to town and you had the chance to meet your hero, whoever that is, past, present, whatever. And then you found out that your hero was just as eager, if not more, to meet you and get to know you and actually cleared room in their schedule so that they could actually come and see you. If our deepest longings are that we, you know, of our souls are to be in a relationship with God, isn't it wonderful news that God also desires to be in a relationship with us? Like, isn't that just beautiful, lovely, delightful? Isn't that just nice? It's great. And so can I just ask you, How's your relationship with God going? That's a question that, I, as I thought about this yesterday, that's a question that I feel like got asked a lot, maybe 10 years ago. I don't know. But I don't think I've heard anybody ask that question, myself included, for a long time. So can I ask that, just ask that question? How's your relationship with God going? And when you think about that, what does your mind go to? And, and if I had to ask you that question do you think, do you feel like you could answer me honestly? And if anybody asks you that question, do you feel like you could provide an honest answer? Or do you have to cling to things that are maybe small and exaggerate them a little bit just to make you feel a little bit more right with God? 
We've been taking these very large strides through the Old Testament to see how it all comes, comes together. God created a perfect world, and he created people to share in that world with him, to dwell with him, and to live and flourish under his good and pleasant rule and blessing. But sin came and sin messed it all up. And so the Old Testament charts the story of God putting that back together again. He begins with a family. He begins with Abraham's descendants, Abraham's family. He promises Abraham, hey, this blessing of mine where I'm going to bless the entire world, that's going to start through your family. It's going to start with your family. The part that we pick up the story today is that God's people, the descendants of Abraham, they've grown and grown, and, and they, they, they aren't living under God's blessing yet. They are, there's lots and lots of them, but they aren't even living in the land that God promised them. They're living in a foreign, foreign land. And so to set the scene, God's people are in Egypt, and there are heaps of them, heaps of them. Many generations have passed since Joseph and his family. We looked at that last week, and they've grown larger and larger in number. And the current uh, pharaoh of Egypt hadn't got the memo that the economic prosperity that Egypt was enjoying was largely due to the fact that this family had moved into Egypt hundreds of years earlier, and and God provided for Egypt in that time. He provided for Egypt, Joseph. And so figuring that these Hebrews, these Israelites, were a force to be, that needed to be controlled, the Egyptians subjected the Israelites, the Hebrews, uh, to, to, to horrible slavery, putting them under horrible conditions, even to the degree of killing the baby boys that were born just to control the population. Amongst this turmoil, though, God raised up Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. By God's providence, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's household, but fled to Egypt. So fled from Egypt to the land of Midian after he killed an Egyptian. And it's there in Midian that we're going to pick up the story for today. It's there in Midian that God came and started speaking to Moses. So point number one, God rescues his people. Exodus 3 and 4 is the story of God talking to Moses through the burning bush. This bush is on fire, but it is not being consumed by the flames. And just have that image in mind for a brief moment. Just put a pin in that. The, the, the bush is on fire, and the, the flame is, is not consuming the, the bush itself. God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. You can hear the echoes of the covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis 12 and 15. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to come, I'm going to take you to the land that I've promised to give you. I'm going to bless you there. It's God's people being brought by God, to his place to live under his blessing. So let's just dissect this a little bit. The first thing that God does here is he introduces himself. I am the God of Abraham. I'm sorry, I'm God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, at this stage in the story, it's, um, it's hard to know, but it's hard to know how much Moses knew about God, but by giving this reference here, Moses being linked to the fact that, hey, his, his ancestors, they had a God, and this is that same God. A few verses later, God gives Moses a name which he can call him. It is the name I Am. 
Now that name, I am, um, becomes the name that Israel continues to call uh, God throughout the entire Old Testament. And it will likely appear after this in your Bibles as the word, the Lord, in small capitals. Now, this name has us scratching our heads. Because this name feels like an unfinished sentence. And it is an unfinished sentence. And it helps us to understand that there is actually no end to understanding who our God is. There is no word or name that can fully encapsulate God's magnitude. God doesn't say, I am like this, or I am this kind. He just simply says, I am, because there is nothing like him. He is the essence of being, the touchstone of all reality. He just is. Nothing can define him. He defines everything else. We could spend every moment of our waking lives pondering and trying to learn more about God and filling our heads with knowledge, and at the end of our lives, we will barely have scratched the surface of how big our God is. God knows everything. God can do anything, and God is always everywhere. He he truly is the eternal God. This name, I am, represents the impossibly infinite power and greatness of God. Now, earlier on in our service, um, Andrew read out from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 28 to 31. Let me share with you just verse 12 from Isaiah 40. It's wonderful. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? That, that the waters, that's the oceans, that's the seas. Who has measured them in the hollow of his hand? I was interested as I was writing this this week, actually just yesterday, how much can you actually hold in the hollow of your hand? So I tried it, gave it three or four attempts. The best I got was 14 mils. And I've got big hands. Like I've got, some people describe them as man hands. Like I've got big, big hands. Like I've, I've not got small hands. 14 mils is all I could hold in my hand and actually contain it without spilling it out. 14 mils. Do you know how much water there is in the world? I googled that. 1,234 million trillion liters. That's the number 1234 with 18 zeros behind it. That's just astronomical. That's one of those figures that's just like, that's impossibly big. We can't get our head. Like, I'm pretty good at guessing measurements of things. Like, if I see something that's the size of an eggnog carton, that's probably 600 mils. If I see something that's like a, a, a Christmas eggnog carton, that's probably one liter. Um, if I see something that's the size of like two liters of eggnog, that would be like, that's obviously two liters. But once it gets past like 10 liters and 20 liters, I don't know what liters look like after that. Like, if you say, how, big, how many liters in this pool or in this pond? I'd say, it's, I don't know. I'm not sure how much eggnog you would take to fill that thing up. 1,234 million trillion liters? And God holds it in the hollow of his hand. It makes his hand wet. That's kind of the impact that it has on him. Second question that Isaiah asks, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or marked off the heavens with a span of his hand? The largest known galaxy is called IC1101, as in the letter I and the letter C1101. The people who obviously name these things, they're very creative. Um, but that, uh, that galaxy is 5.5 million light years across, which means that for light to get from one side to the other, and light is the fastest thing that we're aware of as far as I know, um, 
and light can travel around this, the world seven times in one second, apparently. It, for light to get from one side of, this, of IC1101 to the other side of IC1101 would take five and a half million years. Again, an impossibly large number. We just can't, like, just, that's, I, my brain just stops working after about 75 years. I don't know what comes after that. And God measures it with the span of his hand. <laughs> He's huge. He's massive. Who has gathered the dust of the earth in a measure or weighed the mountains on a balance and the hills on the scales? Have you ever wondered how heavy Mount Everest is? I haven't until this week. God knows it. Like God knows how, how heavy or how many milligrams, how, how, many, how, heavy, how many milligrams there are down to the milligram of sand there is on King's Beach right now. He knows which, how, many, how much sand is underwater, how much sand is dry, how much sand is moist. Like he's, his, he's impossibly huge, and that's what this name, I Am, represents. It's an invitation to, to explore the infinite, the infinite, just incredible, the huge God that we have. God introduces himself, I am. And we'll never get to the bottom of him. We never will. But we will enjoy every single moment of trying. Isn't that great? Isn't that the wonderful path that God has for us? The second thing he does is that we learn here is that God is the Savior. He says, I have heard my people crying out to me and I have come down to rescue them. Isn't that, isn't that just great? <laughs> I've heard them and I've come to rescue them. Like whatever has happened this week that caused you to cry out, and maybe you didn't cry out to God, maybe you just cried out, maybe you swore, maybe you were angry, maybe you just got fed up, God hears it. And God is the one who comes down to rescue his people. God hears us when he cries out. Friends, when we are in despair, cry out to God, because he does hear you. He will hear you, and he is the one who comes down. He is the one who saves. God is our Savior. And as we read through the following chapters of Exodus, this is exactly what God does. He sends Moses and his brother Aaron to petition Pharaoh, and he brings the ten plagues upon Egypt until Pharaoh finally lets God's people go. Now, we're going to be spending uh, quite a bit of time in Exodus at the beginning of next year, so I'm not going to get into too much detail about the plagues this, um, today, but what we can say is that these plagues, um, they crippled uh, Egypt uh, in every single way, economically, spiritually, physically, agriculturally, personally, emotionally. It just broke Egypt. At this stage in history, the, the Egyptian empire, they were a force not to be reckoned with, but these ten plagues collectively and effectively undermine this superpower. Now, something was fascinating here that I've never picked up on until this week, and I was chuffed at this, I thought this was incredible, is just the fact that God is behind all things holding all the strings. Like, if we think back to, we, we talked about Joseph last week, and God sent Joseph to Egypt and caused Egypt to prosper economically, particularly Pharaoh. Now God sends Moses to Egypt to snatch away that prosperity. God is the one who holds all the strings. The nations of the world are in God's hands. Considering everything that's going on in the world, can we just let that truth comfort us? Just, if, if that doesn't comfort you, comfort you right now, let it. 
let the fact that God, who is as powerful as we are saying he is, as the Bible is saying he is, who is as good as he is, is also the one behind all things. Let that be the thing that gives us sleep at night. Let that be the thing that, that pushes our anxiety out. Let that be the thing that comforts us. Now, crucial to the story of salvation is the reason why God wants to save his people. Now, if you're relying solely on the Disney version or the DreamWorks version of, of the, the Prince of Egypt to give you an understanding of the story, this is a point that you're going to end up missing. Now, I'm not against that movie. That's like 10 out of 10 for cast. It's got like Steve Martin and Martin Short and Ralph Fiennes and a huge, amazing cast. 10 out of 10 for visual effects. Like, if you've seen that movie, the crossing of the ocean, the crossing of the Red Sea, and the whales, like, that's just absolutely, like, I'm getting shivers down my spine thinking about that scene. It's beautiful. But probably a 6 out of 10 in terms of, like, accuracy to the Bible. And that's okay. Just know that. But you're going to miss out on this if you rely on that solely to, to give you your understanding of the story. You see... When Moses confronts Pharaoh, he doesn't just say, let my people go free. There's another reason why God wants to save his people, to, to free his people. If you read the text, he actually says more often than not, let my people go free so that they may worship me. And it comes in various different forms. It might be so, they, so that they can uh, make sacrifices to me, so they can go out into the desert for a few days and have and hold a festival to me, so they can honor me, glorify me. But it's so that they can come and worship God. God saves his people so that they come and worship him. It wasn't just about freedom from slavery, as good as that is. It was about liberating his people from a tyrannical power and bringing them un- under his good power under his good rule, under his blessing. God's desire was to liberate them from Egypt, to bring them under his good blessing, under his good rule. He wasn't rescuing them and then sending them off to freedom, going and saying, enjoy yourself, freedom is the best there is. And he's saying, he, he liberates them from captivity so that they can come and worship him because that's the best thing that is for them. He wants them to be free so they can come and worship him. And friends, we were created to worship God, and our lives won't make an ounce of sense until we start to do that. We'll want to worship something, but our efforts will be spent and wasted on things that will always let us down. God wants us to worship Him and glorify Him and have our lives uh, circling around Him, putting Him central central to every single thing. Because he deserves it. He is the one who who is infinitely glorious in every single way. And also, because that is the best thing for us. That's what we were created to do. If If you want your life to have purpose and meaning, start glorifying God with everything that you do. And it doesn't matter what the rest of the stuff that you do with your life, whether it's career or house or spouse or anything like that. Saturate yourself in the glory and worship of God and your life will make sense. And this becomes one of the most important things that Israel could ever know about God. If you walk through the Old Testament and and make note of every single time God says the words or the prophets or the word is written down, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, you will see this happening again and again and again. As a bit of an activity at the start of this year when we started reading the Bible, started from Genesis again, I started drawing a cross every time I saw that, that, that phrase pop up next to that in the margins of my Bible. Every time I saw the words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
Now, if you go back and look at my Bible, it's, sometimes it's like there's five or six per page. Sometimes it's every page. But it just happens again and again and again. And I've been reading Ezekiel this week, and it's still happening. Like, Ezekiel is so far removed from this story, but it's still happening. God is getting mileage out of this phrase. He's getting so much mileage out of this phrase. Why? Because this is the thing that defines Israel after this. They are the people who were saved by God from slavery in Egypt. And as you, as you read through the rest of the Bible, you see this happening over and over again. The most important thing about Israel is the fact that they were saved by God. Friends, if you're here and you're a Christian, the most important thing about you is the fact that you're a Christian, is the fact that you've been saved by God. So the entire nation of Israel, they left Egypt. Um, however, God hardened Pharaoh's heart again, and he pursued Israel with every chariot in, chariot in Egypt, trapping them against the Red Sea. It looked dire, but God parted the sea to let Israel through and caused the sea to fall on the Egyptian forces as they followed them through and entirely wiped them out. And Exodus 14 says, 14.31 says, When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. This is why God did it. This is why God sent Joseph to Egypt. This is why God allowed his people to be enslaved. This is why he hardened Pharaoh's heart and conquered Egypt. It's so that his people would truly understand the magnitude of their God. That there is no one like him. The Lord saves. The Lord conquers. And so to sum up this first point, for God to have a relationship with his people, he needed to first rescue them and conquer their enemies. And friends, that is available to every single one of us. God's rescue is available to every single one of us, and he conquers sin and death, as Andrew prayed earlier. He is the one who conquers sin and death. How, does Jesus conquer? How did Jesus conquer sin and death? He took on our sins on his body, and he carried those sins to the cross. And he was punished for those sins in our place, and he was crushed and killed under their weight. And three days later, he rose again, overpowering death and showing that it is no longer has any power over him and it no longer has any power over anybody who believes in Jesus. God is the Savior. God is the one who rescues. Second point is this. Following on from that, God rescues his people to bless his people. Now, throughout the series so far, we've been using this phrase. You would have heard me uh, use it a few times. God's people living in God's place under God's rule. Uh, it's a helpful tool set to help us understand the, the narrative structure of the Old Testament and actually of the entire Bible. Um, I didn't invent this phrase. I'm borrowing this from Vaughan Roberts' book, God's Big Picture. Uh, but this is a really, really helpful tool to understand the narrative of God's word. And at this stage in the story, God has a people. It's the entire nation of Israel, and there are a lot of them. And he's leading them towards his place, but we're not quite there yet. We're going to get there next week when we get to Joshua, the land of Canaan. Uh, but right now, it's, it's about God. The rest of Exodus and, and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy is about God's people coming under his rule. It's like God spent this time in the desert with his people, teaching them how not to be slaves of Egypt, but how to be the children of God, how to be the family of God. And if I, can, if I can sum this up, God blesses his people, not, with first, not first and foremost with material things, but with himself. 
That's the blessing that he gives them. He gives them himself. He knows that the best thing for his people is actually himself. And so these people show how, sorry, these books show how God actually blesses his people by putting himself in their midst and having a relationship with them. And there are three aspects that we can, uh, that can help us understand these books. There's the law, there's uh, the temple or the tabernacle, and then there's the worship. The law is God's statutes and ordinances that God's people must follow. The, the temple is the dwelling place of God with his people, and the worship is the means by which God's people can actually draw close to him, they can actually approach him. And that is made up of sacrifices, purity laws, and the priesthood. So, the law. Let's look at that. Not long after uh, Israel leave Egypt, we read in Exodus of God uh, giving his people the law. Now, that word law might have some especially negative connotations for you. Maybe your perception about Christianity is that it's all about following the rules and the way that you get yourself right with God is to follow the rules and then he will save you. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. That's not the gospel. How can we understand the law then? Well, here in Exodus, God gives the law and he begins with the Ten Commandments and the first thing he says is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. The first thing God does as he gives the people the law is reminding them that he is the one who saves. This frames the law. This helps his people to understand that they are his, not because they have already followed the law or obeyed the law, but they are his because of what he had already done for them, saving them from slavery. And it is taught throughout the entire Bible that no one can obey their way into the family of God. That happens by God's grace alone. The purpose of the law then is not to be a doorway into the people of God, but to be the means by which God's people submit to their king once they have received his grace. The law was intended to be a blessing to God's people, and obedience to God's law is the demonstration of the joyful life that we have in him. Now, certainly there was... Uh, when we come to the time of Jesus, there were people who were essentially teaching that obedience to the law was how somebody made themselves right with God. But Jesus flipped all of that on its head as soon as he opened his mouth and started teaching. Because he simultaneously taught that uh, your righteousness needs to be better than the Pharisees. He, he, he simultaneously raised the bar on what it means to actually obey God's law and at the same time taught that the very worst of sinners could have God's, Jesus' perfect record given to them by means of believing in Jesus Christ. You could actually receive Jesus' perfect record. This means that when we obey the commands of God now as we understand them through Jesus, we do so not as people who are trying to get into God's family, but as people who have been made God's family, adopted in by His grace, by His great love for us. And we've got to get that order right. If we get the order wrong, that's not Christianity. If we get that order right, that's Christianity. That we obey God not to get into His family, but because we've been made His family by His grace. And that makes obedience a joy. Because it's a response to the incredible and beautiful generosity of God. One of my favorite illustrations uh, between the relationship of grace and obedience, I read in a book a number of years ago. Um, I can't remember the name of the author who gave this. Suppose somebody gave you a loan of $10 million. 
and there were no repayments to be made for the first 12 months. And then when the repayments started after those 12 months, there were monthly, monthly, monthly repayments of $1,000 interest-free. It's a good deal. $10 million, don't have to pay anything back for 12 months. And when you do start paying that back, it's $1,000 a month interest-free. That's a great deal. So you get, you take it, like, thank you very much. And then you spend that $10 million on whatever you want for that first 12 months. And then the 13th month comes around and it's time to start paying it back. And so you open up your banking app and you go to deposit $1,000 to the person who, pay, who loaned you that money. And as you open it, you see that there's an extra $1,000 in there. And it's from the person who originally loaned you the money. And there's a note on that deposit saying, this is to help you with that first payment. So you're giving me money to pay you back? Is that what's going on? Second month, same thing happens. Third month, same thing happens. And over and over and over it happens. That as you pay back this loan, it actually isn't coming from you at all. It's coming from the gift that's been given to you. Now, that's not a, that's not a perfect illustration, I know. But it does help us to see that obedience to God's law isn't a chore when we have our eyes on his unbelievably generous grace towards us. Think about that $1,000 payment every single month. What happens to your heart every single month? It gets filled with joy. <laughs> I just, I look at all I have and it's costing me nothing. And what I do pay back, it's a joy to do. Obedience to God, when, when we have our eyes on Jesus Christ, obedience to God is a joy. It's a delight. It's wonderful. Take your eyes off Jesus and obedience is a crushing burden. Keep your eyes on Jesus and obedience will be saturated with joy. Keep your eyes on what Jesus has done for you and obedience will be delightful to you because it brings honor and glory to the one who laid down his life for you. That's the role of the law. Then we get the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a uh, tent that was set up in the midst of the Israelites' camp and it housed the very presence of God. And the, and the question we should ask is, how on earth can a tent hold God? <laughs> like, that's a crazy thing. Like, if we think about the God who can hold the, the waters in this hole of his hand, how can a tent hold God? How on earth did those people have God amongst them without being incinerated by God, by his holiness? And the answer to that is in the design of this tabernacle. In Exodus 25, God started giving Moses the instructions to construct this tabernacle so that it formed um, these concentric circles, kind of like barriers around the inner part of the tent. And the inner part of the tent was the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place. And it held the Ark of the Covenant, and inside the Ark of the Covenant was uh, the, the tablets, the stone tablets that, Mo that God wrote his law on. And then outside of the most holy place was the holy place. And that held um, a, a few different items. It held um, these items to, that demonstrated uh, God's provision for Israel, his constant watch over them and his nearness. And then outside of that was the courtyard, which is where sacrifices were made. And these concentric uh, barriers, they formed a visual reminder to the Israelites that the God who was in their midst was not a God that you could treat casually. He was not a God that you could just kind of shrug off, a God you could just ignore. He was in the middle of their tent, in the middle of their camp, and you could not treat God lightly. It was a very serious thing to have God in your midst. In fact, when, the, uh, when they first started using the tabernacle, Pharaoh, um, sorry, uh, Aaron's sons uh, were these priests, and they, started, they, they shrugged it off. They took it pretty lightly. They were quite casual about it. And God struck them dead in front of everybody. Like Moses' nephews... <laughs> 
These are important people. Aaron's sons, and God will not have people take him lightly. When I was a kid, we um, lived near a police watch house. I grew up in inner city Brisbane uh, in Windsor, and uh, up until maybe 15 years ago, there was this large, ominous red brick building that was a police watch house. There were these really, really high walls, the razor wire on top, um, and it was like from my bedroom, I could see it like over the, over the houses near us. I could see it, and there was this large uh, watch house, prison type thing in the middle of the suburb. Now, if you, if you drive through Windsor these days, it's a pretty ritzy place nowadays. It's kind of hilarious to think that there was a jail there like 20 years ago. Um, but this large, ominous building, that created a whole... That was like a whole lot of fodder for my imagination about what went on inside of that, uh, inside of that watch house. Now, inmates were... I found out later on, were only kept in there for like one or two days at a time tops. They were brought in, then taken to town and caught. But we made up a whole lot of other really crazy stories about the things that happened inside that. And as friends, we used to tell each other these crazy stories of these things that we saw and witnessed and happened to us, and we were lying. We were totally making stuff up. Um, but one of the stories that I used to share was, um, one night, I heard the alarms go off at the, at the prison. Now, those alarms actually did go off all the time. They were, it was a weird thing, and I don't know why we slept through that, but every night there was alarms going off at the prison. It's a strange thing. But one night... I heard the alarms go off, and then a few minutes later, I heard footsteps outside my window, and I, they were like, I could hear the this crunching on the gravel underneath their feet, and one of the guys said to the other, let's hide here for a while. Now, that didn't happen, but I told people that all the time. That was a story I invented to, because I was just like, well, I, I live in such a dangerous part of the world. Look how tough I am. Look how, look how brave I am to go back to sleep, thinking that there's you know, a couple of axe murderers hiding outside my window at night. And, and those were the stories that we told one another. There was this mythos around the, the Windsor prison that stood tall and large for the entire neighborhood to see. What kind of criminals were serving life sentences in there? What kind of criminals were being put to death in there? Like there was, Those were the things. And in the same way, this large tent was a constant reminder to the people that Yahweh, the I Am, dwelt amongst them. But it wasn't filled with tall stories and myths it was real. It was tangible. It was scary. It was beautiful. When the tabernacle was finished, God's glory descended upon it like a cloud and filled it so much so that Moses couldn't get into the tent. And when the temple was built many years later, when Solomon built the temple and replaced the tabernacle, the same thing happened. They finished the temple and God's glory came down and, and filled the, the temple so that the priests could not enter it. It was such an intense thing. The glory of the Lord filling the temple so intense that when God enters that temple, insane. And this is one of those times that the Old Testament makes sense of the New Testament. Because we're going to read in a few weeks' time that Israel was actually unfaithful to God to the point that God... Uh, removed them from the land, exiled from them from the land. And the temple got destroyed. And when they came back, they rebuilt the temple. And it was this, to this great fanfare. But the glory of the Lord didn't come down in this one. The cloud didn't fill it this time. And then we read in the Gospels of Jesus entering the temple. And this is part of the reason why we're doing this series. Because if, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, if you don't know what this stuff means, you'll read Jesus into the temple, and you're like, whatever. That was huge. 
God was entering the temple again. Whether it was as a, as a baby to be dedicated, whether it was as a boy and when he was stayed, amongst his, stayed in his father's house, when, it was, you know, when he went in there to turn over the tables, Jesus entering the temple is a massive, massive thing. And what does Jesus say when he enters the temple? He says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. This means... That people, when they came to meet with God, it was no longer in a physical structure somewhere, but to meet with God was to come to a person. Come to the person of Jesus Christ. And anyone at any time in the history of the world after that can come to God without fearing being incinerated by His holiness. Finally, we have the worship. God's presence is pure and powerful. His holiness is like the sun, both good and dangerous. And the point of Leviticus is to show uh, how people can relate to this holy God. And there are three main elements in approaching God. The first is the sacrificial system where animals and other goods were sacrificed in worship to God as thank offerings and to make atonement for sins. Um, the second thing was the priesthood, which um, that there was a certain tribe amongst the people of Israel, the Levites, who were given the task of working the temple, working the tabernacle, um, and staying close to the presence of God. And then the third element was the purity laws, which are laws about how the Israelites can keep themselves clean from sin and, and, and what to do if they were to become unclean. And all of this system uh, centered around a special day once per year called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And it was when the nation of Israel would come together and gather together and confess their sins to God, and God would deal with their sins. And two goats, would be two goats would be involved with this. The first goat would be sacrificed to make, the blood would be spilled out to, be, to make atonement for their sins. And then the second goat would be brought forward and the, the priest would lay his hand on that goat in the presence of all the people and confess the sins of the nation onto that goat. And then they would send that goat out into the wilderness, give it a kick in the bum and make it go running off into the bushes. And all of Israel would watch their sins be taken away from them by the scapegoat. That's where the word comes from. The whole idea of Leviticus was that God was creating a way for his people to come into his presence. However, this way is obviously limited. It could only happen on one day per year and one person from one tribe could actually enter it and only if he went through, uh, through days and days of ritual purity rites to ensure obedience to God and even then sometimes the high priest still died in the presence of God. It was limited. It was left, it felt unfinished and, until, of course, the arrival of, of God and the person of Jesus Christ. And we remember that story. We, we remember what happened when Jesus died and the curtain was torn in two, exposing the Holy of Holies like an exposed nerve to say, now God is accessible for anyone and everyone who comes to him. Book of, the book of Numbers charts the fact that even though God saved Israel and blessed them and provided for them, they still grumbled, preferring their old lives of slavery because at least they got to eat meat. The Israelites in the book of Numbers are helpful to us because you read through Numbers and you smack your head and you go, oh, you idiots, what is wrong with you? And then you realize, this is talking about me here. <laughs> this is talking about my complete unfaithfulness, my times that... You know, I'm going to get angry later on today at some stage about something. I don't know what it is yet. It's going to be that somebody's driving too slow in front of me, probably. It's going to be that, be that my kids aren't, you know, uh, showing me the, the respect and, and the love that I think I deserve. It's going to be something, and I'm going to get angry about things. And they, that anger is going to be in, an indicator of the fact that I think I'm the center of the universe. 
And that's after I've been here preaching the gospel to you guys, that God's the center of you. Like, I continue to fail. And when you read Numbers, that's what it is. It's just God's people continuing to fail. The book of Deuteronomy, then, is a speech from Moses to God, um, outlining their, un, uh, their, um, their unfaithful response to God and a challenge to... Uh, to resist, um, sorry, the challenge to uh, respond to God's grace with love and, uh, and obedience to God's law. And then the book of Deuteronomy ends with Moses' death. The point of all of this was that God was making himself known to the world through his people. To be saved by God is a matter of his grace and not our effort. And to obey God is not a matter of earning, but joy-filled worship. We were created to know God, to be in his presence, and to worship God. And it was God who made a way for us to come into his presence without being incinerated. Think back to that original image of the, of the bush that's on fire and not being consumed. That's the image of the Christian life. That we can come into the presence of God and not be destroyed by the presence of God. Why? Because Jesus was destroyed on our behalf, as our substitute. When we think about that burning bush, that it wasn't just getting Moses' attention, that's a depiction of actually what life in Christ looks like. We can come so close to the holiness of God and not be incinerated by him because we are in Christ. We are made righteous through him. So what must we do to have a relationship with God? What must we do? Three things. Let him save you. That, we need to receive his grace. We need to receive his forgiveness. We need to actually not come to his grace thinking that we can somehow add to it or improve his grace or make it easier for God to save us. Because when we do, we nullify his grace. I was having a conversation this week um, with someone talking about the fact that sometimes we're resistant to receive God's grace because we think we so desperately don't deserve it, we're so far gone. There are others of, the, of us, though, who think that we don't, we, who, who resist the grace of God because we think we don't need it. We're, we're fine, pretty good. I've been a good person. And if I, can, if I compare myself to Hitler, I'm always coming out pretty good. We need to receive God's grace understand that we are far more broken, far more busted up than we could ever dare to believe. But also, we are far more loved than we could ever dare to hope, to quote Tim Keller. We need to receive his grace. We need to actually take it on. That might mean you have to confess some sin. It means you have to repent of your sin and say, God, I need you to save me from my, slave, my, my, my captors, from the thing that has enslaved me, which is my sin. Second thing we do, can do, draw close to God in His Word. Open up God's Word and read it. If, if reading God's Word is a struggle for you, that you might get, you know, five minutes in once per week, don't try and do three hours a day after that. Just make it 10 minutes this week. Make it 15 minutes next week. And make it 15 minutes twice a week, the week after that, and grow in that, and grow in that, and come to God in his word. In the same way that God's people were saved out of Egypt and brought under God's rule, even though it was in the desert, we can come under God's rule by coming under his word, under his commands. Read God's word. And third thing, 
Come to God in worship and, and pray to Him. Praise Him. Devote your life to Him. Say, God, what else can I be? What, else, what other part of my heart have I, have I not actually given to your grace? What other part of my life have I not allowed to be redeemed by you? Let God's grace in. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.